Welcome to this podcast about Hilton Head Island and the Low Country. I am Jay, your host, and in this episode, we are going to talk with Mark King about golf and a little bit of tennis on Hilton Head. Mark will share some history about a few of the courses and how the building of golf courses helped spark the development and growth of the island. Let's head to the links as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. Mark King is a longtime Hilton Head resident and has been involved with golf and tennis since coming to the island. Mark founded the club group in 1986, which managed Harbortown for 17 years, and he is also the president of Cornerstone Golf Partners, which manages four golf courses in Georgia. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jay. It's a pleasure to be with you. How did you come to Hilton Head and what did you do when you got there? Jay, I came to the island in the fall of 1972 and I, I actually was born and raised in High Point, North Carolina. And after college, I decided to turn um, professional um, I, in a prior life. I used to be a pretty good uh, player. So it was, I love golf. And so that was a natural evolution. Um, and I was always interested in the business of golf. So I moved from High Point to a place called Bald Head Island, which is right off the coast of uh, Southport, just south of Wilmington. And it was a wonderful um, island, coastal barrier island, uh, right on the uh, Cape Fear River was being developed by a developer from High Point, and uh, I, I worked there for nearly a year and a half, and unfortunately, one of the key components of the development was getting an inland marina permitted. We had just about completed the golf course, and then there was a slump in real estate, and the Army Corps of Engineers would not issue the permit to the marina. So the long story short, uh, was that the developer had to close the development down. And I was lucky enough to have a cousin who had come to Hilton Head Island uh, earlier in 1972 and had gone to work as an assistant golf professional at Shipyard. And so I called my cousin C and he said, uh, well, you might want to consider coming to Hilton Head. And I came to Hilton Head in the fall of 1972 and uh, have been here ever since. Now, you worked for the Hilton Head Company, is that correct? That's that's correct. I started for a very brief period of time at Shipyard Golf Club as an assistant golf professional, and then was lucky enough there was a position that opened up in Port Royal in the spring of 1973, and this that was when I worked uh, for the original Hilton Head Company that was uh, owned by the Hack family. They later sold the company to a uh, company from Philadelphia by the name of Oxford First Corp. And a wonderful gentleman uh, by the name of Aaron Gold uh, was the owner of Oxford First. And so I uh, worked there as an assistant golf professional and then at the age of uh, 25 was lucky enough to have been made uh, director of golf then later vice president. And so I, I spent uh, eight years working for the original Hilton Egg Company uh, there in Port Royal. And then uh, in 1980, the original Hilton Egg Company was sold to Marathon Oil Company from Finley, Ohio. And Marathon came in and I had the pleasure of working under a wonderful gentleman by the name of David Axine, was here on property for nearly five years. And during that time, it was very exciting for me because I sort of grew from just a golf professional and, and overseeing a few tennis courts to really getting quite involved in the overall development of, of golf courses and racket clubs 
clubhouses and a bit into the whole development side where during a five-year period of time, we added a third course to Port Royal, a, a brand new clubhouse at Port Royal. We um, added a fourth nine to, uh, or a third nine to Shipyard Golf Club with a new clubhouse. We developed Wexford Plantation, wonderful inland marina, 18 holes of golf and a beautiful clubhouse. We started the development of Indigo Run with the first golf course that was being designed by uh, Willard Bird and Ken Venturi. So it was just a real growing experience for me uh, working with first the Hilton Head Company and then uh, Marathon Oil Company as the new owners of the Hilton Head Company until, if I'm remembering correctly, 1985 was when a gentleman by the name of Bobby Ginn, who was a entrepreneur from upstate uh, South Carolina, basically acquired the Hilton Head Company assets from Marathon Oil Company. And he acquired the Sea Pines Resort assets and merged the two companies into a very large resort operation. I was lucky enough at that point to be named as senior vice president of sports operations. And at that point, we had 12 and a half golf courses, five racket clubs. We had five tournaments, including the Heritage Classic and the Family Circle Tennis. We had uh, three marinas. Uh, we had fun for kids, bicycle rentals. So it was a very, very large sports operation and in, in related amenities. So that was a capacity I was I served in for about uh, 18 months until it became very apparent due to a number of reasons that the Ginn Holdings, Sea Pines Company, uh, was not going to make it financially. Long story short, Ginn Holdings at that point slid into what would become the largest bankruptcy in the history of the state of South Carolina. And at that point, that was when John West and John Curry came in as um, bankruptcy trustees, took control of all the assets, and then later basically sold those assets. They basically sold what was previously owned by Marathon Oil Company back to Marathon. And the assets within Sea Pines, uh, there was an organization of property owners in Sea Pines known as Sea Pines Associates, which were 600 uh, property owners who individually came forward and made contributions to uh, the entity known as Sea Pines Associates and took the golf courses, the tennis court, and some real estate out of the bankruptcy. And a gentleman by the name of Abra Fogelman, who was a very um, a large apartment developer in the Southeast and a very high-profile sports person that had long been an admirer of Sea Pines and an admirer of Charles Frazier and had a, kept his boat in the marina. He also owned the Kansas City Royals when uh, they won the uh, World, World Series. And so very successful entrepreneur. Well, he negotiated purchase to where he purchased all of the Harbortown assets from the uh, bankruptcy and the Harbortown assets that he purchased included the um, the marina, all the surrounding shops and restaurants, boating operations. And so uh, shortly after his purchase in 1987, he completely remodeled. He basically emptied the marina at that point and replaced all of the docks and all the infrastructure, dredged the harbor, 
and converted the second and third floor of the surrounding Harbor House A building into what is now known as the Harbor Town Yacht Club. And I had met Avern by virtue of his interest in the Heritage Golf Classic under my reign as senior VP and struck up a friendship. And so fast forwarding, he basically hired my company, which is the Club Group Limited, to come in and serve as managing agent for the Harbortown assets for Prudential Base Fogelman. And that's a capacity that we filled from 1989 through 2005. And then in Prudential Base Fogelman made the decision in 2005 that they wanted to sell the partnership through our real estate company. We basically negotiated the sale of the partnership assets to a gentleman by the name of Bill Goodwin, who had been a long-time resident of Seapines, was the majority shareholder in the Seapines Associates, and nationally known as a very successful investor. And so he basically purchased the surrounding commercial interest uh, in uh, in Harbor Town, including the restaurants, and and so and he purchased the uh, assets, the golf courses, and the tennis from Sea Pines Associates, and is now extremely aggressive in redeveloping the assets, the uh, resort assets in Sea Pines. At this point. Uh, he's he's since redeveloped, uh, completely replaced the Sea Pines Beach Club with a beautiful facility. He replaced the old Plantation Club clubhouse with a an absolutely gorgeous facility, as he did with the Harbor Town Golf Links Clubhouse, and basically rebuilt. Um, all three of the resort golf courses, including Harbor Town, dealing with the infrastructure and the conditions, the drainage. Uh, so he has invested just an enormous amount of money in the assets and just recently demolished the old quarter deck building adjacent to the Harbor Town Lighthouse and is developing an incredible facility there, which will have 300-degree views of the golf course, peeping out to the ocean, looking at the Fusky Island, and all the way back to the bridge from Harbor Town. So it's going to be a magnificent facility. And uh, the Sea Pines property owners uh, have been very lucky to have such a responsible developer buy the assets uh, from the Sea Pines Associates. And so that, in a nutshell, is is kind of the <laughs> chronology or the evolution of what uh, my, my involvement here on Hilton Head has been. Yeah, they've definitely invested just a ton of money. I remember when the the beach club went in, when they built that, I was like, this is flipping amazing. (laughs) It's just such a a beautiful thing. But I'd like to back up to when golf started on Hilton Head, and it started with Charles Frazier developing courses in Sea Pines. Can you tell us about the development of the courses there and how it helps spread the game of golf throughout the area? The first golf course on Hilton Head was the... uh, uh, nine holes at the Ocean Course back in the early 60s. Um, I think the Ocean Course opened in 1963 or 1964. Shortly after that, Fred Hack, who owned uh, most of the property on the north end of the island, and he, he began developing Spanish Wells and Port Royal, he built nine holes on uh, the Barony Golf Course. And so those were 
the first two golf courses on Hilton Head. Charles is is, is an incredible story in itself. Uh, Charles is hard to capsulize in less than five hours, but <laughs> Charles basically very early on uh, after developing the ocean course, he had master planned Sea Pines Plantation with uh, about 5,980 dwelling units, and it had four golf courses, which it does today. And he had the vision of one golf course being the centerpiece of uh, the island and just an incredible vision for what that golf course in conjunction with an inland marine uh, marina could do for Sea Pines uh, Plantation. He, he very early on developed the vision that golf courses add tremendous value to the surrounding real estate so that the real estate that was not already blessed with views of either the ocean or the marsh or the natural lagoon system could be the values of the inland properties could be dramatically enhanced by threading golf courses, creating golf course frontage that that added tremendous value to the surrounding real estate. So what Charles did, uh, in addition to basically drafting the first modern-day covenants for development, including you know, the architecture of Dubord, the tree ordinances, which went far beyond the zoning that was in place under Beaufort County in, in self-imposed covenants that live today. 55 years later, we still see Pine still operates under those covenants and restrictions. So back to your original uh, question, Jay, he realized the value of golf. And I'm sure we're going to get into Harbor Town specifically, which is an incredible story in itself as to how that course came about and what that golf course has done for not only Sea Pines, but Hilton Head Island and really the state of South Carolina. It became a one of a kind with a very unique history behind it and is largely responsible for the fact that hundreds of millions of people every year, uh, the week following uh, the, uh, the Masters in Augusta, get to view Sea Pines and Hilton Head Island across the world in the springtime, which most people think that's, that's the time that ushers uh, the golf season in. So his vision uh, and appreciation of history and of appreciation of nature all came together in a golf sense to create something that's just very unique in the world. And what's really interesting about Charles Frazier is he didn't play golf. He didn't play tennis. He didn't ride bikes. He didn't go to the beach a whole lot. He wasn't an outdoorsy type person, but he was able to have that vision of what other people would enjoy and in, in creating experiences for uh, people and especially families. He was very big into creating family experiences. For a period of time, the only place you could find manicured grass in sea pines was on the golf courses. Nobody else could have a lawn. Share with us your thoughts of how Frazier blended golf in with the natural beauty of sea pines. Well, what what Charles did, and, and this was in the routing of the golf courses, he, he was very careful to work the routing around any legacy, what we call now legacy oak trees. And we're talking about trees that um, 150, 250, 300 
uh, years old that he basically absolutely put off limits to take down. So the routing plans were done around these these incredible trees, and he really took the natural waterways and gave uh, George Cobb, uh, who did the original ocean course, and, and as well as coming up to Pete Dye, who obviously was the architect on Arbor Town with, with at that point Jack Nicholas was a player consultant to Pete. And he just he he used the golf courses in a way to uh, serve as the greenways and the green spaces, but he was very protective of what the natural waterways, the marsh and the trees were, because back then even developers who had done golf courses a lot of times would go in and just clear cut trees, put the golf course in, and then basically be able to maximize the density around the golf courses without any regard to trees and drainage and uh, elevations where they could sort of clear cut and just have vanilla pads for construction without having to be imaginative in order to save the natural environment. And and that's why when you drive through sea pines today, it's just a masterful job of blending basically a maritime forest uh, with marsh and, and three and a half miles of ocean and, and uh, two beautiful marinas. It's just, he did an incredible job with, um, setting the standard for planned unit developments really across the world. Uh, the alumnus of, of Charles over the last uh, 50 years has been seen far and wide in some of the very finest planned unit developments in the world. And, and one one example would be what uh, at Palmetto Bluff on the other side of Bluffton near Pritchardsville. Charles was a consultant for uh, uh, Duke Power uh, who developed Palmetto Bluff, and you can see a lot of Charles uh, out there in the design. When Fraser was getting ready to build the Harbortown course, he called Jack Nicholas and said, hey, I want you to come build my golf course. And Nicholas was a player and beginning developer of courses and recognized the fact that, okay, I'm probably not the right person to, this is probably ahead of where I am right now in my golf course development career. And he tells Frazier, you need to call Pete Dye. And so Frazier calls Pete Dye and Nicholas ends up consulting on uh, and helping beat Pete actually developed the course. Well, along the way, Jack Nicholas finds an opportunity and he comes to Fraser with the opportunity to host a PGA event while the Harbor Town course was still being built. How did the decision to host the first Heritage in 1969 change the island? I, I think that, uh, in, in my opinion, and this is just an opinion, um, I think that the characterization of Jack Nicholas's involvement was more as a player consultant. I think at that time, Jack, being you know the finest golfer that had ever played, but just an incredible good business person who who had a vision of his own as to what he wanted to do when his playing career was over. And in 1971, his playing career was far from being over. But he had the foresight to begin to say, well, what I would like to do when my career ends is to become a golf course architect. And I think that 
he he just knew intuitively that with with his playing um, schedule that to tackle what would be a a bit of a difficult piece of property to design to meet Charles's uh, vision, he rightfully introduced Pete Dye to the process. And so I think that really the the Harbortown Golf Links, uh, while I think Jack played a role with the introduction and, and, you know, with the shot values from a player's perspective, was really Pete Dye's baby. The interesting thing about the golf course, uh, to my knowledge, it was that when Charles conceived his vision of the Harbortown Golf Links, he did so in the context of history. And a lot of people don't know, but Charles was an incredible uh, researcher and studier, um, very well studied on the history, not only South Carolina, but the Low Country and specifically Harvard, uh, Hilton and Island. And in the course of his studies of sea pines, the 5,000 acres that he had purchased from uh, his, his, basically his father, he found out that there was significant golf history in the Low Country that few people knew. And, and that that piece of history was the fact that the first golf course established in America in 1786 was established in Charleston, South Carolina, on a piece of property right there in the middle of the historic district or the historic district as we know it today called Harleston Green. And there are very significant historical records of the numbers of old golf clubs coming over from Scotland being shipped to very successful seaport uh, owners and merchants in Charleston. And they established the South Carolina Golf Club uh, in Charleston. And there are old lithographs and paintings depicting Harleston Green, which has since been developed. In and around, there's a large lake in the historic district of Charleston called, and I've just drawn a blank on the name of the lake, but it's it's still there. And you can sort of visualize because there in several paintings, you can see several of the cathedral chapel spires in the background. So you can sort of orient exactly where the original club was. The um, Charles, being the historian he was, went to a gentleman, a professor by the name of George Rogers with the uh, University of South Carolina, and they published a book on Harleston Green. And Charles went further uh, to actually the charter for the golf club was still in existence. And through legislation, he actually had the charter of uh, Harleston Green reassigned to the Harbortown Golf Links. And it now now is it resides in the Harbortown Golf Links Clubhouse. So the history of golf in America, 1786, which is now, you know, some 230 years old, it all started in Charleston. And, and so Charles Charles's vision of memorializing the first golf club and Turning the the Harbortown Golf Links into a authentic Scottish type design, uh, he he felt like that uh, Pete Dye was the very perfect architect because Pete was designing, starting to design golf courses 
using the old Scottish features of the stack side bunkers, the railroad ties, the sleepers, which are the, you know, the faces of some of the bunkers in Harbor Town, because in any envisioned Harbor Town is a links type golf course. And so along with that, what makes the Harbor Town golf links so unique during the tournament is that they actually celebrate the traditions of, of golf dating back to um, the uh, 17th century to St. Andrews, where 17th, 18th century St. Andrews, where the captain plays their way into office. Uh, the pageantry of the parade and the bagpipes that begins every heritage uh, and always has. This, the cannon firing off with the first uh, shot. And all of that pageantry was based in Scottish history of the game. So Charles took not only the fact that he wanted a golf course that would be different than the, the um, golf courses that were being developed during that period of America. Pete Dye certainly delivered in spade. At that point, it was seen as one of the finest golf courses in the world that had just opened because it was very unusual in design. It was, by today's standards, a little on the short side. It actually had huge oak trees to where you could be, if you were slightly to the right center of a fairway, you might not have a clear shot to the green, so it would, it would force you to fade the ball. Or if you're on the left center of a fairway, you may have to hook the ball. So it was very much a short, a shot maker's golf club, and it uh, had the smallest greens on the PGA Tour, for example, and still does. So Pete delivered in a very unusual way, and, and it was unique from the standpoint of history, celebrating the, the old Scottish traditions, which are celebrated today. And it was what was incredible that the golf course was built in about one year from start to finish. And that was almost unheard of back then that a golf course could be built in a year. And not and shortly thereafter, Charles actually had the first Heritage Golf Classic in November of 1969. And we were, were all very <laughs> fortunate to have a, a gentleman by the name of Arnold Palmer win the first Heritage Classic. And uh, at that point, Arnold was going through a slump and it was first his first win in a uh, number of years. And at the acceptance ceremony, there's this this beautiful photograph over his left shoulder of the Harbortown Lighthouse, the skeletal form of all the structure being complete, but the sides of the lighthouse had not been put on yet. So it just it was it was just a almost a storybook finish. And for forty five straight years it's been telecast by CBS. Uh, reaching, as I mentioned earlier, hundreds of millions of people across the world. And so the significance of Harbortown to golf on Hilton Head, golf in the low country, and golf in South Carolina, if not America, is just extremely significant. There are obviously 
a million amazing golf holes out there. Knowing as little about golf as I do, you know, the last person you want on a golf course is me. But <laughs> I've watched over the years and, you know, I see the church pews at Oakmont, uh, the 17th at TPC. You know, I, I know where they're playing. My contention is that while there are many amazing golf holes out there, I contend that the 18th at Harbortown is the most recognizable hole in all of golf because someone who knows absolutely nothing about the game of golf can walk by a television and see the tournament and the lighthouse and immediately know where they are playing. What are your thoughts on that? I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the 18th hole with the uh, red and white striped lighthouse uh, in the foreground behind the 18th uh, green is is recognizable for so many reasons. One, you've got the Calabogie Sound and the marsh that that comes into play. You've got probably the one of the largest landing areas in America for your drive, and there's a story behind that, which um, I'll get to in a minute. But the fact that Charles's vision of creating that last hole coming back to the Harbortown Yacht Basin with the Harbortown Lighthouse being, in effect, centered behind the 18th green. When the Harbortown Lighthouse was built, as an aside, a lot of people called it the, Har- the uh, Frazier's Folly because they thought that was the dumbest thing they had ever heard of. Well, in probably five or ten short years, the Harbortown Lighthouse has become the most recognized private logo symbol east of the Mississippi. And so what started as being a, people considered as just nonsense and making no sense is the very reason it's the most recognized golf hole in the country, a lot of people would argue. The, the interesting design uh, of the, the landing area in the 18th fairway Basically, the reason the fairway is so wide is the peninsula going out in the landing area toward the Caladogi Sound was created by accident. They basically had to come up with a lot of field dirt to raise the elevation of the entire 18th fairway because it was quite low. And at high tide, it became actually part of the marsh, if you will. And back then, the restrictions on developing marshland was nowhere near what it is today. Today, you could never construct the 18th fairway. But back in you know the late 60s, the restrictions weren't nearly as restrictive. So Pete had designed the golf hole with a more normal landing area and had installed a dike, if you will, because the, the field to uh, build and raise the elevation of the 18th fairway largely came from pumping the uh, material out of the Harbortown Yacht Basin to create the depth of the Harbortown Yacht Basin. What happened is the dike broke shortly after the supervisors, I understand, left, and so it continued to pump fill from the Harbortown Yacht Basin into that area. And before they could stop the pump the following day and repair the dike, it had already uh, accreted into that peninsula 
uh, to the left side of the fairway. So it it was something that was created entirely by accident, but it, it proved to be a significant, uh, recognizable part of the golf hole. One of my favorite stories about the Harbortown course that Pete Dye tells in the book, My Life with Charles Frazier, is uh, he's in the process of building the course and he gets a call from the head of the PGA and he says, I want the sand in those sand traps to be there for at least six months before the tournament in November. And Pete's on the phone <laughs> going, sure, not a problem. They hadn't even <laughs> built a sand trap, let alone put sand in anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, knowing Pete, nobody specified how much sand and how many bunkers. So he, he, uh, the, the wizardry of Pete died uh, at that point and through his entire career of, you know, building probably 300 plus golf courses is that unlike most architects, he, he did very little drawing. He would do his routing plans literally on the back of a napkin or a small piece of paper, and he would have certain specs that he was looking for. But he actually got on the tractor and 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 the grader and the bush um, or the uh, bulldozer, and he he dug it out of the dirt himself. And particularly early on with Harbortown, it was very hands-on, and that's that's why you have I think the unique features in Harbortown that. I'm not sure would have been there unless Pete was literally on the site personally overseeing the grading and making sure the elevations were correct. And I think one of the concerns he wanted was to make sure these these legacy monumental live oaks were entirely protected because you cannot move a lot of dirt within their um, canopy uh, on the ground beneath the canopy because it began to damage root structure. You could kill the tree. So he, he was very hands-on in Harbortown and basically carving it out of nature without damaging nature. So there's a lot of things that go into the uniqueness of Harbortown that would take uh, days to <laughs> really appreciate. Yeah, we might need to come back and revisit some of them. The The other story <laughs> that was in there that was really, I thought, just an iconic story was he's building 12 and his wife is out there and apparently she was active in, in you know, the development of these courses and she's giving him a hard time about something. And he's like, honey, go build 13. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> how many wives can you tell them to go climb on a bulldozer and go build a golf hole? And she does it. She actually went and built the 13th hole at Harbortown. Well, picking up on Alice Dye, a lot of people, a lot of people don't understand. And I think, you know, anyone that's a real avid golfer understands that Alice actually designed the iconic 17th hole at the Players Club uh, in, in St. Augustine, the Island Green. That was her design, not Pete's. And the other thing about Alice was she was an, a world-class amateur golfer. She won the North-South championship several times among many uh, women's amateur events over her career. And likewise, Pete was an incredible amateur golfer. He was uh, probably a scratch, if not plus handicap, a remarkably good player with a good amateur career before he ever thought about getting into golf design. So the collaboration of Alice and Pete Dye was remarkable. And, and so uh, just like the iconic 17th Island Green, Alice was not bashful at all about saying, okay, I'll go design the 13th hole. And 
the 13th hole, quite frankly, having played the golf course for the last 50 years a number of times, is probably one of my very favorite holes because there's an example of off the tee. It looks like you got a fairly wide spot, which you do, but you've got to hit the tee shot right of center or you'll be blocked completely by the trees and so and that was an example of where uh, alice used the sleepers which are basically a timber ties laid into the face of the bunker instead of the stack sod or instead of instead of just bringing the slope into the bunker with grass as you see on most golf courses and so that gives the players Anyone that's played Harbor Town has probably had the shot in the bunker there that all of a sudden you, you hit a shot and it ricochets off the face of the uh, the bunker there with your timber ties. And you can get some really weird shots. And probably anyone that's watched the Heritage Classic for years, you've actually seen players play backwards there because there's no way to advance the fall forward and so it that was her design and i think she had some major input to the four par threes at harbor town which many people including many pga tour players thinks that the four par threes on harbor town golf links are the the finest uh, on tour it's an amazing story and i can just imagine knowing the 17th at TPC and you know how many golfers just have struggled on that hole sometimes and how many multi-millionaire golfers there are out there they're like cussing out Pete Dye's wife for the design of that hole <laughs> well one one infamous is we're on par, par threes the 14th hole uh to some degree it had this little pot bunker to the left rear of the green and it probably was about eight feet deep and the uh the bottom of the bunker was completely flat it probably was round and it was maybe five feet by five feet uh in diameter and it was affectionately called the devil's and i'll start with the last letter it start is an a and the last letter is an e and you can fill in the blank it was called the devil's <laughs> blank and it was <laughs> <laughs> and the reason was, if you got in there, you, you either had to just hit it and hopefully somehow have it ricochet off the front and bounce out of the bunker, or you had to play sideways. <laughs> uh, and so there were a number of players in the early, early Heritage Golf Classics that just had so much trouble that over time, I think, I think under pressure by the PGA Tour, Today, when you hit it in that little pot bunker, it's not nearly as severe to where at least the player can get it out of the bunker without having sideways going sideways or backwards. But it started out in as as a real punitive feature to the 14th hole. Moving away from the Harbor Town course, what are your favorite courses in the area, and why? And are there any particular golf holes that really stand out to you? Well, when I, when I first came here in, in 1972, there were only seven golf courses on Hilton Head. If I had to, from a personal standpoint, rank my favorites, um, I would have to put Harbortown as my favorite. So if, if we start and fill in the blanks on second through the next five, I would say my second favorite would unquestionably be Long Cove. Charles was presented with a different opportunity at Long Cove 
Uh, Long Cove, he had a much more sort of blank palette to work with as opposed to Harbortown. He was not having to work within with marsh frontage. He was dealing with a piece of property that was largely second-generation pine trees. They do, uh, on several of the keyholes, have huge, beautiful live oak trees. But it was he had a, the ability to uh, move a lot more dirt on uh, Long Cove to create some very imaginative golf holes. And so my second favorite would be Long Cove. I think one of my favorite golf holes at Long Cove would be the short little uh, fifth hole where he basically created a par four that was, I think it was 320 yards long from the very back. And, but it had a blind second shot. And uh, there are a number of uh, courses in Scotland and in Prestwick where you actually will have a blind shot. And what they would do is put a large boulder on top of the hill. And that was your aim point. Well, the fifth hole at Long Cove, you can hit anything from a mid-iron to a driver where you could actually drive it uh, within probably 40 or 50 yards to the right of the green. You can't go at the green because it's large hump that creates the, uh, the visible barrier between uh, the golfer and his second shot. But it's just an incredibly strategic hole where – if you, you if you hit it properly, it, it can become a fairly easy birdie. If you hit it improperly, you could go into double digits on what is the shortest hole in the golf course. So that was that was the uniqueness of Long Cove. And today a lot of people, if they were ranking golf courses on Hilton Ed, they would they would put Long Cove right right at the status of Arbortown and someone even rank it as number one. My next uh, uh, favorite golf course would be the original 18 holes at Shipyard Golf Club, uh, which was designed by George Cobb. What right now, um, Shipyard has three nines called Clipper, Galleon, and Brigantine. The original two would be Galleon and Clipper. And I think those those original 18 holes in Shipyard are just, just fantastic golf courses uh, the greens complexes and the beauty of shipyard it's a much more traditional golf course with traditional buckering and use of water they have some beautiful live oaks in and around shipyard but it's it's a much more traditional golf course than either uh, harbor town or long cove I guess my next course would be one of the newer golf courses. I uh, was was not even thought of when I first came to the island, and I think the uh, Arthur Hills course in Palmetto Dunes. Arthur Hills is just a wonderful golf architect that that I had the pleasure of working with, and of course that we uh, owned up in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, he, he is just a remarkable golf course architect very imaginative particularly in the greens complexes and his bunkering is quite unique and so i would say the arthur hills golf course in palmetto dunes 
uh, would certainly rank right up there. Moving up to 78, I think the the original 18 in Port Royal is a favorite of mine because that's kind of where I started my career. I lived in Port Royal for nearly 16 years. It's an old George Cobb golf courses uh, golf course. As I mentioned, it was the it's the second oldest second uh, course built on Hilton Head back in the 60s. And it's just a wonderful resort golf course where everybody can enjoy. You've got large greens, adequate landing areas, and just beautiful, beautiful uh, oaks and pines. Um, uh, so that would that would be a favorite of mine. And then I, I really the there probably the the uh, last of the top or the I guess the second five following Harvard Town. Um, there's a um, the cup course in um, Palmetto. Um, I'm drawing a blank on uh, right adjacent to the airport, uh, adjacent to Hilton Head Plantation. Um, that that's a neat golf course. Uh, Bob Cup um, used very ge- geometric designs, which it, it, if you're in the air looking down, it looks rather strange. But when you're playing the golf course, it really is a, a very imaginative uh, 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 golf course. And so that would probably be another favorite of mine. The PGA is coming back to the Low Country in June of 2021 for a second tournament. How important are tournaments like this for a local area? Oh, the uh, the financial impact uh, of all tournaments attracts, you know, not only the spectators and the officials, but sort of it gives a top of mind to the whole area. You know, the event at Congaree will be uh, restricted uh, on a like fashion, I assume, as the heritage. But the fact that in a very short period of time, you know, we've got uh, not only the Heritage, but uh, the Congaree event. And then, of course, the event that's going on in Kiowa for the whole low country. It's it's pretty remarkable that that three marquee events are all happening in the low country, South Carolina this year. You know, the economic impact, for example, of the Heritage uh, is just huge. You know, on, uh, I think they've now given... Uh, well over $100 million to charitable causes um, and the economic impact to the to the uh, island in terms of all of the hospitality and the restaurants and, and retail, it just, it, it brings not only people and uh, having a good time, but uh, the exposure as it relates to the heritage of having four to six hours of network coverage and then having the cable coverage through the golf channel that gets rebroadcast in probably 115 countries across the world, it, there's no way uh, that you could even come close to ever buying that type of coverage, and particularly at that time of year. So having Hilton Head internationally exposed for that length of time is, is almost immeasurable. And I think the state of South Carolina certainly recognizes that through the uh, state tourism uh, board. So it's, it's huge. It really is. Around the country... There are lots of great golf courses in a lot of different states. Florida obviously has a gazillion golf courses down there. California, Arizona, you run through the list. But South Carolina 
really embraced the sport of golf and has a tremendous amount of courses all the way from the low country uh, up through uh, the Atlantic coast. Do you see South Carolina as somewhat of a golf Mecca? Uh, it, it, it certainly is. I mean, you've, if you go to the, uh, to the North Carolina border and, and go all the way to the South Carolina border at uh, Georgia and just along the coastline and look at the 100-plus courses just in the Grand Strand, Myrtle Beach area, and then you come down to Kiowa, and then you come down to Hilton Head, and then you go out to this side of 95, which is generally sort of recognized as the low country of South Carolina. And you include such facilities as, uh, you know, the two courses at Collett and the two courses at Belfair, at Berkeley, and then you go out to uh, uh, Palmetto Bluff, Congaree, uh, the Palmetto Club, uh, in, you know, upstate, the just there were remarkable not not necessarily the quantity of courses but the relative quality of courses uh, in South Carolina is pretty remarkable it uh, you know obviously Myrtle Beach claims to be the number one destination just by the sheer fact that you've got almost a hundred golf courses within a, you know a 60 mile range but uh, in terms of the quality of courses you you I I'm not sure I can think of a state that can match what we have uh, here in South Carolina. There would be some people that claim so, but uh, we, we've just got uh, not only a quantity, not the most, but but the quali- the high level of quality of courses here in South Carolina, and particularly in the Low Country, are just remarkable. And then you know I've left out the the, uh, the you know the courses up in the mountains uh, that are that are truly remarkable as well. Now, moving over to tennis, I was speaking with Jim Light, and we were talking about Sea Pines and the development of tennis there and how we recognized that there was a demand for it. Do you think the hiring of Stan Smith might have been the smartest thing that Charles Frazier ever did? Oh, I think so. I mean, at the point in time that Charles started the relationship with Stan, of course, he was the number one player in the world at that time and and for uh, a number of years thereafter. And he was then subsequently, you know, just so he's such a, a great human being and so widely respected in the um, tennis world is Davis Cup, uh, you know, captainships over the years. And to this day, if if s- someone were to sort of take a poll as one of the most admired people in Hilton Head, I think Stan Smith would be pretty close to the top. He uh, He's just so well-balanced. He's a wonderful family man. It's not only his remarkable abilities for such a long time, and he can still play, and he has a very successful tennis school here in Sea Pines uh, called the Smith Stearns Tennis Academy. Academy, but just just the the character of the individual, and and I think Charles uh, was very very smart, and and you know uh, having Stan Smith now representing the resort for uh, I guess about fifty years at this point. I think it speaks volumes about what Charles Fraser built in the fact that Stan Smith was hired to be their touring pro and represent Sea Pines, and he never left. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. You know, Charles was such a remarkable human being in any, in, in so many ways is, you know, you've heard the word visionary and, and, uh, that's almost come cliche with describing Charles. He, he always thought, uh, in another dimension, he was usually 30 or 40 years ahead of everyone else. And I, I think he understood that his shortcomings was, as you pointed out earlier, he, he was not an athlete. He didn't really participate in golf or tennis or sports in general, but he knew the importance of, of having very high level, high quality sports amenities to attract the market, uh, to that would eventually uh, support and sustain Hilton Head and particularly Sea Pines, and so yeah, it's uh, it, it he was rem- so remarkable in so many ways and thinking decades down the line uh, in in terms of what he wanted Sea Pines to become, and I think what Sea Pines is right now is just a very very uh, unique and special place. The Family Circle Cup was played on the island for 28 years and ended up moving to Charleston in 2001. Can you tell us why that happened? Uh, gosh, the Family Circle was just a, an incredible event, as was the or is the Heritage. We lost Family Circle because basically Family Circle began to become so popular in terms of corporate sponsorship and client entertainment that literally, in my opinion, Family Circle sort of outgrew the logistics of what Harbortown could offer. They began to need more and more parking, more and more laydown areas for the for the corporate entertainment. And I think the developers who were uh, envisioning and saw tennis as a focal point for Daniels Island saw an opportunity to, in effect, build a tennis complex for Family Circle with very adequate uh, parking, very adequate laydown areas and tent locations and infrastructure that that really the Sea Pines Racquet Club, which was built, uh, you know, in the um, uh, late 60s, early 70s, was just not capable. There was no way to expand because, of course, you had Harbortown Golf Links literally sharing the parking areas and, and the entire property around the racket club was fully developed with condominiums and residences. So it, it basically, uh, it, it logistically outgrew the original home after 28 years. And I think the developers of Daniel Island just made them a, a an offer they couldn't refuse. And and it's been a remarkably successful event on Daniels Island ever since. Do you think that 28-year run of having the Family Circle Cup in Sea Pines really helped not only Sea Pines, but Hilton Head grow? Oh, without question. I mean, the the fact that you had Hilton Head reach two major uh, sporting markets, sometimes within weeks of one another, and, and even occasionally, depending on how the dates fell, back to back to where you would have uh, hours of television coverage of Family Circle, which would you know was a traditional event being uh, telecast by NBC to uh, millions and millions and tens of millions of people in this country and internationally, and and then you've got the heritage as we talked about before, literally reaching hundreds of millions of people in many countries. Having that type of exposure back to back in the springtime, focusing. 
uh, on sea pines, but also on Hilton Head Island. That's the type covers that there's no way you could ever buy that from an advertising marketing standpoint or even a PR standpoint. So I think, you know, the double dose of uh, being uh, exposed not only from a golf standpoint, but also a tennis standpoint in the spring of the year where we're reaching, you know, our major market areas where people are tired of the slush and the snow in the Northeast and the Midwest. Uh, it was it was really part of uh, uh, Charles's marketing genius on on uh, why Sea Pines was so successful and and uh, it jump started the development of of Hilton Head for sure. You talked about Charles being such a great promoter. You step back and take a look at some of the what I call the dumb luck moments, you know, the hiring of Stan Smith and then he goes and wins Wimbledon U.S. Open. But having Arnold Palmer win the first Heritage and end up on the cover of Sports Illustrated holding the trophy with the being built lighthouse in the background, you can't get better PR than that. You can't buy that kind of coverage. Absolutely true. And, and of course, he, he didn't control nor orchestrate the fact that, that uh, Arnold had been in a slump and this was his first event. And, and uh, you know, you just, I mean, that's just a remarkable moment. It's sort of like that famous photographer or a photograph of Charles appearing to be walking the alligator on the practice range of the plantation club. It's just one of those things that comes together and somebody snapped the photo. I'm not sure how you would ever orchestrate that, but he he was the type and, and he had a extremely uh, astute gentleman by the name of John Getty Smith, who was uh, marketing director for Sea Pines for a number of years, knew how to parlay all of that in, in the most positive way uh, in terms of promoting Sea Pines and Hilton Head Island as a destination. So, yeah, that's that's one of those, those uh, that's when the planets align. And if you've done the right thing, sometimes that happens. But yeah, that I don't know if it was totally dumb luck, but it, uh, it was very fortunate. Yeah, it's it's one of those those moments in life where you're like, well, I'd rather be lucky than good <laughs> at this point. And, <laughs> exactly. and Charles Frazier just, you know, I want to take that. I would have wanted to take that guy to Vegas. It's like, here, here are the dice. Start throwing. <laughs> You've been on the island a long time, close to 50 years at this point. You've seen the island develop tremendously over the years. Is there one thing that stands out to you as having the biggest impact? I think the, the one thing that um, stands out to me is the fact that um, when when Charles Frazier envisioned the covenants that he put in place uh, in Sea Pines uh, as part of the master plan in, in the early 60s, the fact that uh, those covenants have been replicated, reproduced, copied, improved upon, tweaked all across Hilton Head Island and really across this country and parts of the world. And here we are uh, almost 60 years later, and they still work. They, they um, have, I mean, the, those, those served as a template for like covenants and restrictions that you find in place at uh, Shipyard and Port Royal and Palmetto Dunes and Wexford and Long Cove um, and, and all of the uh, Indigo Run, all the planned unit developments on Hilton Head that really have sort of set the standard uh, in terms of uh, not only the, 
the development, but the architecture of view, the fight, the fact that, you know, lighting is very controlled, uh, trees are protected. And, you know, this was 20 years before the town of Hilton Head was ever even thought of being incorporated. That happened, I think, in 1982. And so it, it, it has enabled Hilton Head to not fall prey to uh, many other areas that started out in a very special way and they lost control. I think that uh, Charles putting in place those self-imposed covenant restrictions that go far beyond uh, the zoning or the restrictions of the, the municipalities or the county government or whatever is why Hilton Head is, is still on course with the original vision uh, and, and a lot of places have gone the the wrong directions because they weren't set up properly in terms of those restrictions and controls. And the town's done a, a good job of, you know, um, carrying that outside the planned unit developments and make, making sure to the best of their ability, you know, that the corridors and the other areas are being protected. I know that the, um, the land uh, preservation that the town embarked on uh, oh, probably 15, 20 years ago, where rather than trying to restrict the density, which um, would be very difficult to legally do, the town basically began buying up property and, and, and land banking it and turning it into passive use, open areas, and in some uh Times parks uh, and the like, so it's it's just it's um, it's a special place, and I can tell you, I like Hilton Head better than when I came across the bridge fifty years ago. When I first came here, I think we had um, a permanent population of about twenty five hundred people, and we had six or seven restaurants and two grocery stores and. If you needed much, anything much more complicated than a 60-watt light bulb, you may have to go to Buford or Savannah. And here we are today with still a very, very special place, uh, unique uh, in this country. And we have all the conveniences of major metro areas. We have nearly 250 restaurants. Uh, we have every big box grocery store and, and uh, you know, at Lowe's, Home Depot, Walmart. And it's all planned where it's not in your face as you're driving down 278 or across the Cross Island. And, uh, you know, the signage is controlled. I remember the the lawsuit when McDonald's came um, near the Sea Pine Circle and wanted to put the arches um, up as they customarily do, the big orange arches. and the town said no, and uh, I think it was the first time that McDonald's was ever challenged with putting the arches on or having had declined permission to put the arches up. And what they had to do instead would put a small sandblasted uh, wooden sign out front that said McDonald's on it. So what what you see is you go in Atlanta and you see other many other places now, no longer is the exterior McDonald's, you know, got huge um, uh, attachments and bright yellows. Now they're very much more subdued. And that's a good example of kind of the restrictions in Harbortown going beyond, I mean, not Harbortown, but Hilton and going, you know, uh, into other metro areas. When I started this podcast, I couldn't think of really any place else that I'd ever been to 
that had such a passion about it. Two and a half million people visit the island every year. More than 70% of those are returning visitors. Why do you think it is people have such a passion for Hilton Head Island? I go back to the uniqueness of this place uh, where you you really do have a sense of removal of, you know, although we're only a couple of miles and, and two bridges uh, off the mainland, it's 48 square miles. We have 12, 12 miles of the most beautiful beach uh, and all of the marshlands and tidal creeks. And the fact that, that uh, it has not been ruined, it hasn't been overdeveloped. The population is pretty much straight line. Permanent population is more or less straight lined at about uh, 38,000 plus or minus people. And that's pretty much all there ever will be. It's, it's just stayed the course with the original course that was set by Charles Frazier and then emulated by others. And I think people appreciate, much like Martha's Vineyard, if I had to make a, you know, a little bit of a comparison, there's a place that stayed the course. But unlike Martha's Vineyard, you can, you can, you know, can drive a couple of cars or a, a couple of bridges and, you know, come to a place that where the ocean uh, meets the land and you've got um, two and three hundred year old oak trees with moss hanging off and you got palmetto trees and sort of a little bit of a subtropical environment. But yet we do have four seasons, which is makes it um, very uh, appealing to a lot of people. Uh, We have a number of our people who used to go to South Florida, which is beautiful, but it has a sameness from a from a climate standpoint and in parts of florida have just in my opinion been grossly overdeveloped where you know they're they're sort of concrete uh, jungles in many places particularly in south florida but hilton head has never succumbed nor will we ever succumb to that so it's just this this special 48 square miles just off the mainland in lowland south carolina which uh, it just has its own beauty as as bluffton is been remarkably aggressive in their growth for all the same reasons that uh, is low country south carolina is just a unique and beautiful place where were you when you heard the news that charles frazier had passed and what were your initial thoughts well i was actually in florida at my uh, in-laws home in uh, jacksonville beach which is right there in jack off the coast of jacksonville and when i got the news that charles uh, had passed and, and then it was, uh, you know, a, a tragic situation where he was um, in the Turks and Caicos and was enjoying a boat trip with uh, his family and that the boat exploded and, and uh, basically everybody was blown out the side of the boat and that he passed away. I, basically, I think that he drowned before they could uh, get to him. It was kind of a um, an end of an error but I think that uh, Charles had been re-diagnosed that his cancer had returned, that he had been successfully battling for a number of years. And in some ways, I, I was thinking that Charles, in some ways, may have thought that might be the appropriate way with his family in a very beautiful and, and serene environment. And so... Um, as sad as it was, it, it uh, thank goodness the rest of the family was, was not injured. The the story of that sort of followed up on Charles's passing was the immediate question that 
that we all found out it was that not the question but the issue that we all found out it was that in charles's will he had expressed the desire to be uh, buried under the liberty oak tree and so one of the purposes of the call to me is at that point we were still managing all of the Harbortown assets for Prudential based Fogelman. And as part of the property of the partnership, we actually had a 30 foot band around the Harbortown Yacht Basin that was owned by the partnership. And so we actually owned the property where. Charles would be buried. It would be the only place that was logical under the Liberty Oak. And so uh, Chuck Skarmanach, who is one of the most respected attorneys, certainly on in Sea Pines and in the Low Country, Chuck had always been not only the company, the Sea Pines company attorney, dating back to the late '60s, early '70s, but he had also been the personal attorney of the Fraser family since Charles sold the company. And he and I immediately began to go to work in terms of getting the permissions uh, from all of the owners from the uh, partnership. And Chuck did the proper research and documenting the. Uh, permanent easement to accommodate Charles's uh, burial. And so that was that was actually the secondary reason for the phone call. The first reason was to let me know, and the second that, that Charles's wish was that he wanted to be buried under the Liberty Oak looking at the lighthouse. And I think very few people knew that, and, and I'm not sure even the family necessarily knew that he had that wish. And so we, we all had to scramble at that point to uh, get the documentation and, and everything in proper order so that the island funeral home could, in fact, uh, logistically pull that off in, in a pretty short period of time, which led to a ceremony that was the that was just almost like a, a Hollywood production. I mean, it was it was just a beautiful uh, ceremony with uh, about a dozen speakers, each having their own insight to Charles and Mary Fraser spoke very eloquently about you know their vision of Sea Pines, and we had the bagpipers, and there must have been five hundred plus people uh, surrounding the live oak on beautiful day. And it was quite, uh, quite the ceremony. If you could have one final conversation, what would your final words be to Charles? I think that, that on his, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but on his uh, uh, memorial plaque, I want to say that Mary in the, um, had something added to where it gave the background of Charles and then it quoted, I think scripture uh, basically said he went about doing good. And Charles, um, I guess my my thanks to Charles would be it's, he really made a difference. He he would he could be very controversial and he would could be very opinionated, but he deep down uh, was a good person that wanted to help people and understood that people needed relaxation and gathering places and in developing sea pines. He he really. Um, left a lot on the table. He resisted overdevelopment. He resisted taking shortcuts. He resisted many things that a lot of developers, particularly with the financial 
uh, strains of several recessions in there. He refused to do those things. And I think that his impact on not only the 150 million people that have been to Hilton Head since he started, but the effect of his visions and his um, planning expertise that's gone throughout America and been replicated in, in plan unit development after plan unit development, it really it sort of changed the uh, course of development in the United States to where going in into beautiful property and just clear-cutting hundreds of acres was no longer the right way to go about responsible development. The, the impact that he had across the country and certainly parts of the world based on what he envisioned here in Sea Pines has been replicated. I, I would just have to thank him for that. Um, it's a truly remarkable, remarkable person. Mark King, we thank you so much for your time. We appreciate you being on the show. All right, Jay. Thank you very much. My pleasure. <laughs> 